Hi everyone and welcome to the latest episode of our Risk and Regulation Rundown podcast. I'm Andrew Strange, your regular host, and as last month, we're recording this remotely, so please note the sound quality might not be quite up to our usual exceptional high standards. In today's episode, we're discussing how firms can deliver fair value, a common theme we're seeing across a range of financial services uh, initiatives. I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Spires and Anne-Marie Stone from PwC's Insurance and Asset and Wealth Management Practice. Mark's a director in our wealth management team, and Anne-Marie is a senior manager focusing primarily on insurance conduct. So why is value important? Well, I think there are really three reasons. Firstly, it's been rising up the FCA's agenda for some time, and my own experience has been around the value assessment work we've seen in asset management um, over the last couple of years, and I think that will pave the way for further work across other bits of financial services. Secondly, the FCA did pull out delivering fair value in the digital age as one of their key objectives from their business plan, which I think, again, underlines that cross-financial services focus they've got on the issue. And finally, I think we do actually also have a bit of a changing tone from the regulator. So perhaps as we move into a, a post-Brexit world where we're more focused on outcomes, treating customers fairly is clearly going to continue to be an important part of that. But I think by asking firms to deliver inherent value, it's potentially more important as actually it will focus and drive the agenda further forward. So Mark, why don't we start with you? Why don't you set the scene in terms of what we're seeing from the FCA and what it means by value and what it wants to see from firms? Sure. Hi, Andrew, and uh, thanks for um, having me on. Um, as ever with subjective terms, people have different ideas about what good value is. And it's really hard to define and measure value consistently. But I think what the FCA means by value is a calculation of what the customer is paying for and the quality of the products or service that they receive. Being clear about the value of products or services it offers and delivering fair and transparent value are, of course, critical for firms to meet the FCA's expectation in this space. So when thinking about value, it's not just the price of a product or service that we should be thinking about, but also considerations like accessibility, reliability, flexibility for changing circumstances and so on. Okay, so, so what might be an example of where a firm needs to think about and beyond cost to deliver that value point? Sure. So for the sake of example, uh, a low cost solution might be appropriate for low income consumers. And many of those products are offered digitally. But it may in fact be those consumers who are benefiting from lower cost solutions that are more likely to be digitally disadvantaged and couldn't access those solutions. So that would in fact offer poor value for that demographic. Okay, that's really interesting, Mark. So, I mean, turning to the wealth management sector specifically, I know that's your pet area. So what, what do you see as the FCA's expectations uh, and how are firms and your clients changing the way they, they think about value and react to that? So I think firms in the whole of the asset and wealth management value chain have been under real cost pressure for a few years now. And that pressure has led to both horizontal consolidation amongst advice firms, the wealth management market, and vertical integration between asset managers and those advisory firms. Um, there's obvious commercial advantages in both of these strategies, but there's also potential harm to consumers that the FCA is alive to. So for example, if a vertically integrated firm tries to steer consumers to their own products that are not delivering good value, or indeed excessive consolidation reduces the numbers of quality independent advisors who can navigate without fear or favor the products and services of multiple manufacturers, then we may well see poor outcomes for consumers. 
So the FCA is now reviewing the market effects of both their previous reviews in the advice market. And this new review could trigger a wider assessment of whether the advice market is offering good and competitive outcomes for consumers and ultimately value for money. When you line that up with the asset management market study, I think firms should be taking a holistic approach to assessing value, considering factors such as quality of service alongside cost and accessibility, and really looking along the whole of their value chains. The FCA is still really very alive to the possibility of consumer detriment in this era of consolidation of vertical integration. And I can see how perhaps in a vertically integrated firm, that holistic approach is quite or comparatively easy to do perhaps. But, but given that other parts of the wealth space have a, a number of actors within distribution chains, how do you see that different parts of the overall customer experience interact to provide value? The interaction of the manufacturers of products who are usually asset managers and the distributor of the product who's usually an investment or wealth advisor and who interacts directly with the end client really does speak to the product governance agenda which looks at what the firm has on their products and service shelf at a macro or strategic level. But underpinning that and the flip side of the coin is the tactical application of that product shelf to a particular client situation. And really, that's the raison d'etre for advice firms to help their customer to find the right product for them at the right time from a range of manufacturers. And in other words, in the regulator's words, you know, the most suitable product or service for their circumstances. And that may be from a restricted shelf that the firm uh, creates um, or from a wider whole of market approach. And I know that you, we're all talking to the regulator regularly, um, both ourselves and through our clients. But what, what do you think the FCA is looking at in that value chain? Yeah, as well as looking at the, the competition implications and, and the wider governance piece, the FCA is also looking at that tactical and micro interaction, that suitability interaction, and carrying out another suitability review. Um, and that will look particularly at the suitability of advice provided consumers taking an income in retirement. It's also likely to explore value for money, particularly in relation to ongoing advice. And this has been a key area for them recently. Uh, in this consultation on banning contingent charging for pension transfers, the regulator raised concerns around the longer term conflicts that these charging models could create. Really, you know, in, in general, the FCA is worried that with a growing cohort of defined contribution pension savers, the options offered by the advice market and the financial education of those um, savers in general won't provide them with enough information and knowledge to make informed choices about their later life finances. Um, and, and therefore, the industry should really be considering this in the design and delivery of their products. Thanks, Mark. Well, from a sector I know lots about in wealth management to one I know a little bit less about, um, Anne-Marie, can you explain what aspects of value the FCA is looking at in the insurance sector? Um, I've heard about them talking about fair pricing um, from the regulator, but it's not just about pricing, surely. Are there other things firms should be thinking about? Uh, thanks, Andrew, for inviting me along to get today. And uh, yeah, pricing is one aspect of value um, and product value has been a key area of focus for the FCA in the general insurance and fuel protection market now for some time. Um, the FCA refers to value as the interaction between the overall cost 
um, to that end consumer and the quality of the product and the service. Um, so by this, they mean whether the product is compatible with the objectives, interests, and those characteristics of the target market, as well as the cost and any charges of the product itself. Um, they also talk about product quality, um, and that's in relation to the range of the benefits for the end consumer, including the level of cover under the policy and how claims are handled or other services provided by manufacturers or other parties in the chain. So manufacturers really need to have that lens over the end-to-end -end distribution of the product. Um, and you probably saw uh, in the business plan uh, earlier this year, that the FCA did restate that firms' remuneration practices can lead to customer harm uh, by driving down the value to the customer. That does talk to that piece that I've already mentioned. Um, and again, this was something that was coming out of one of the previous reviews in the distribution chain. Um, and that was noted in particular around, obviously, uh, the remuneration essentially eroding that value to the end consumer. So it sounds like there's an awful lot of things happening there actually Anne-Marie. Um, let's pick on a few of these and go one by one. So in terms of the work the FCA is doing on pricing, what's it currently doing there? Uh, so yes, there's a market study as you're aware that's going on at the moment. Now that has been delayed until the autumn um, but we do have the interim findings. So they were published in October last year. Um, now, this part is really focused on the margin for customers. Um, and there were clear signs that the FCA is moving much more to intervention remedies to enable customers to get a good deal. OK, uh, and um, there must be some other measures. So I'm going to ignore the fact that we're already in autumn, I think. So this, this could be an imminent thing. But what kind of other measures should firms be thinking about um, just before the publication comes out? Yeah, so some of the more significant included limiting pricing uh, practices that allow for firms to charge higher prices to consumers who don't switch. So, for example, restricting or banning margin optimization based on consumers' likelihood of renewing. Another area was requiring firms to automatically switch customers, paying high prices to lower price products that provide equal cover, um, making auto-renewals opt-in only. Uh, other things included requiring firms to publish information about their price differentials between consumers. Um, so this may increase competition pressures and public scrutiny um, and also introducing stronger product governance rules such as applying IDD requirements to older products. Um, we're seeing varying degrees of activity by firms to prepare for the final uh, publication. Um, some have done initial sort of overview of the impact of those interventions um, whereas others have done sort of more full scenario analysis showing a range of potential impacts. But I don't think we're going to see anybody making any sort of movement until um, that paper gets published. 
Thank you, Anne-Marie. Uh, and there's a really interesting range of behavioural economic factors that you've, you've touched on there, which is really helpful, actually, as a segue, because next month we have a behavioural economics uh, expert coming to talk on the podcast. So thank you for that. Now, COVID-19 has also prompted the FCA to, to require insurers and insurance intermediaries to consider the value of their products as well uh, in the changed circumstances of the pandemic. What does that actually mean for firms? And is it like to have a longer term impact beyond the current pandemic in the way firms look at value? Um, so, yes. So COVID has really shone a light on product value, making it more acute where a product is not providing value. So in terms of what it means, so firms essentially need to identify those products where benefits can't be provided or where there has been a fundamental change in the risk such that the products are now providing little or no utility to the customer. Um, so once they've identified uh, the products that um, fall into that bucket, they'll need to obviously do an assessment um, of any of those and take any necessary actions. All of this they've got to do um, in terms of working out what actions that they've got to take by the 3rd of December. Um, and from again, from speaking to firms, there seems to be, you know, varying degrees of where they are in that process. So some have done a bit more of an informal process and um, they're still yet to sort of stand up a full project around that, whereas others have obviously got their project underway and, and are sort of moving forward with that. I think it depends on the size of the firms as well as to whether it's sort of more formalised or less formalised. Um, with regards to the sort of the longer term impacts, I can see firms needing to strengthen their product oversight and governance arrangements around their assessments of product value um, and, and using the lessons from this review and building those into their BAU processes. Well, it sounds like there are some longer term impacts there, but actually also with the 3rd of December deadline, there's some really um, pressing issues that people need to deal with now in that case, Anne-Marie. I mean, you said earlier that value is wide ranging, and I think you're absolutely right. I suppose in my mind, I've always bucketed value in more of a kind of conduct side rather than the prudential side. But actually, there must be some interaction between the two of them. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that, please? Yes, absolutely. It, it is important that firms take this holistic view um, of the product value assessment and changes to the GI pricing practices. So, for example, the nature and the scope of the remedies suggested in that interim market study could have wide business model and prudential implications for firms, um, which is why a number of the firms have already been entering and, and you know, commencing their scenario analysis around those. But one example could be insurers needing to assess the inherent cross subsidies in their product pricing which might squeeze profit margins and constrain the ability to generate profitable top-line growth. Thanks, Emery. That's, that's all very interesting and very true. Um, if we can perhaps now turn slightly more towards technology. I mean, I mentioned at the outset that one of the FCA's priorities for this year, and actually on an ongoing basis, is around delivering fair value in a digital age. And clearly, the, the impact of COVID is such that digitisation has, has expanded and, and speeded up even further. I mean, we're all sitting in separate places recording this, for example. 
Um, I guess I'd be interested to get your thoughts on how technology is impacting the way that firms deliver value, assuming it, it, it is and it does. So, Mark, I'll come to you first. What, what sort of impact of tech are we seeing in wealth management firms? Um, so I think whenever we start thinking about technology in the wealth management and advice space, thoughts always turn to robo-advice. Um, and that's been a real key development over the last few years. And it really does have the potential, if we get it right, to deliver advice to lower cost and help plug the advice gap. Um, however, it has been on the table for a number of years and hasn't yet made a significant impact on the market. Um, when people talk about it, um, they tend to use robo-advice as a catch-all for a variety of services, whether that's one-off, ongoing advice, online discretionary investment management, and the like. The FCA regulations are technology neutral, so expectations around providing value um, in the advice process will be the same, irrespective of how it's delivered. And that's really created a number of challenges for firms who are looking to deploy pure robo-advice models, particularly around the product disclosures and suitability um, models that they, that they operate. Um, of course, COVID's really uh, accelerated wealth firms' uh, digitalization, and many firms now operate a hybrid model. So that's human advice supported by automated technology, which can do heavy lifting at various labor intensive stages. So for instance, around fact finding and onboarding a client, which then reduces the cost of the firm um, of having a human do that process. Um, and, and with the socially distanced COVID-19 world that we live in, that of course um, looks a lot more attractive. Uh, Interestingly, PwC has actually been working at a number of um, firms um, on AI or robo-assisted advisor models, where our advisor assistant actively monitors the client conversation and suggests where there may be suitability problems or the customer may be vulnerable or other um, things like that. And it gives the advisor live suggestions on the next best action for the customer. And obviously, this has the potential to deliver real benefits. But there's also the risk from how algorithms are designed and, and operate in practice. But there are problems. We've seen a number of major financial institutions launching robo-advice-only models, some of which are clearly targeting the mass market end of the retail sector. However, some of these services are using fee models that are in some cases more than um, human-only models. And that may raise questions about whether or not those models offer value for money and whether they're adhering to the FCA's expectations that where we do implement technology, that that will be used to drive down costs for consumers rather than just increase profit margins. And of course, we've seen the closure of a number of robo-advice propositions. So the sector really hasn't figured this out particularly well yet. Yeah, I mean, you say that the regulator is sort of technology agnostic, uh, and I suppose it, it really wants firms to, to experiment and do things that, that, that potentially fail fast, but do so in a safe way for consumers. But, but on a wider basis, I mean, has the FCA got a, a sort of lead initiative in, in the tech space, even if it is kind of agnostic of how it's done at all? Yeah, so I'm really excited about um, the potential in the Open Finance Initiative. Like open banking, it's got the potential to be really disruptive in the advice market by making it easier for the end consumer to see all their pots of money in one place. And that would mean 
that much of the admin time for firms to bring that picture of everybody's wealth pots together will be taken out of the process. And then the power of transparency starts to move to the individual. As more people have more defined contribution pension pots um, and ISAs and other wealth assets, this will really allow a real change in the way that individuals can interact with their wealth and later life provision. But in the end, implementing a great, flexible, digitally enhanced customer experience really has the capacity to give a firm an increase in their advisor efficiency and better and more consistent client outcomes with reduced costs that ultimately will, will benefit um, all, all consumers. That's a really great point about open finance, actually, Mark, particularly given the impact we've seen of open banking on payments. Um, Anne-Marie, are we seeing similar consumer technology solutions providing value in the insurance space too? Uh, yes, so as well as those that were mentioned by Mark, um, we see product innovation is an area that could have an impact on the price that the consumer would pay. So, for example, um, we've already seen usage-based insurance that's been around for a while now and is price based on how individual consumers act or use the insured assets. So, for example, we've seen telematics to monitor when and how a consumer drives. And in particular, we've seen that used for younger drivers. Um, and then there's things such as on-demand insurance, which is probably newer, um, but that allows consumers to buy coverage when they need it and only for as long as they need it. Um, so that could be for things like travel, event insurance, or pay for mile, auto coverage, those types of things. But as with any innovation, firms will need to think about the needs of the target customer, um, as this does play a part in the overall product value that um, firms need to consider when they're creating their products. Thanks, Anne-Marie. Yes, I think the innovation point in insurance is actually really interesting as well. So we've talked there about innovation, we've talked about regulatory expectations, and we've touched on some of the technology we've seen. Um, but to finish off, it would be great if I could just get a final key message for how firms should really embrace value. Mark, let me come to you first. Yeah, so I think this starts at, at the top. Um, and, and Delivering that value in its widest sense should be a key objective for all firms. And there's really been a lot of talk recently about corporate purpose and firms should really think about how they integrate delivering value to their customers into that corporate purpose. And Anne-Marie, what do you think? And so in addition to what Mark mentioned there, I think, um, you know, whether firms are part of the product value review or not that's going on uh, through the COVID piece, um, I would encourage firms to use the experience from the coronavirus pandemic to future-proof their businesses around product value. So that's probably the key takeaway from me. Well, thank you both for such a, a wide-ranging discussion there and for so neatly um, talking about behavioural economic issues that we can segue into our, our podcast next month. I think there's an awful lot of the firms to think about. I think there's a lot to do in terms of meeting both the regulators' expectations, customers' expectations, and innovating to keep up with your peers in the market. So thank you both for your time today. I also hope you found this interesting and helpful. Please feel free to share this podcast with colleagues and subscribe to future episodes. And I'll be back next month with our next episode.